Number 161 was announced that we mark that and we'll look forward to the opportunity to stand and sing that together a little bit later in the service tonight. As was mentioned also by Brother Lester earlier, the number of six, certainly we're thankful for the improvement of those who have made improvement. We continue to, to think very much about those who are sick and soon hopefully they'll be able to be back with us certainly. Tonight as we are assembled and we continue our study of the book of Job in the Old Testament, as we give thought to the 42 chapters of that book, we already this evening come to that set of chapters, Numbers 32 through 37. And as we look at those chapters, we find a different speaker than one we've encountered previously. So far in our study of that book, through the various cycles of speeches, we've learned about the oppression or the difficulty that surrounded Job. We also came to notice three friends who came with an interest in comforting or assisting him by at least their presence. Those friends were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And in each instance, as they addressed Job, he replied. And that took us th thoroughly through two cycles of speeches. And then in the third cycle, we noticed only two out of the three spoke. Zophar seemingly had nothing to say on the third account. But as that ended chapter 31 with Job's reply, it brings us tonight to a different speaker. A gentleman named Elihu begins speaking now as we take up the 32nd chapter of this book. And almost immediately we wonder about Elihu. We wonder where he has been. Has he been present all the while the others have been speaking? If so, why has he not spoken until now? Thankfully, we have some of those answers at the outset of the lesson tonight in the opening few verses of chapter 32. With them in mind, we might perhaps use that as the beginning point of the lesson this evening. In the opening few verses of Job chapter 32... Elihu now begins his speaking or his address toward Job and there are immediately a number of matters weighing upon the mind of Elihu. So much so that the first dozen or so verses of the chapter he in fact makes note of these and I've tried to do the same in these opening remarks. First of all if we ask why is it that Elihu hasn't spoken until now? And we also ask if he's been present why has he been silent? It would seem he has been present. From the comments he makes, he has heard what the other three friends have stated. He has also heard what Job replied, and for that said, he has some remarks himself. First of all, Elihu respected Job and the other friends to the point that he himself was younger than they. And he thought it better for them to speak because given their years of wisdom and their years of age, they ought to have been more knowledgeable and they ought to be the ones to have spoken first. For that reason, he had withheld his comments until this time. But we also learned something else. Elihu had a degree of boldness about him. Once he did take the liberty of speaking, he directly addressed Job and rather clearly chastised him. In fact, he was a bit angry at Job. Job, why have you made the comments that you have directing your thoughts to the self-righteous attributes that you have? In addition to that, he was also angry at the three friends. He was somewhat upset that they had not successfully condemned Job. They had made claims, but they had not convinced him of their correctness. And so at this point, Elihu was upset on two accounts. First, he was upset at Job for Job's self-righteousness. 
He was also upset at the three friends because they had failed to make an ironclad case against Job. With all that said, we perhaps can then appreciate that Elihu is now going to speak. How does he make his argument against Job? And how does he make the argument against the three friends? Beginning again about the midway point of that chapter, we notice that Elihu claims to have much to say. He said almost in likeness that he had as much to say as the waters of the sea, and he just couldn't wait to begin talking. It'll take us through the next six chapters to get through what Elihu had to say. As we begin to look, first of all, I would ask you to note near the bottom of that slide. He first of all had this to say. He addressed Job, and he now states his interest, his willingness, and the great intensity of his language in an effort to describe the thoughts on his mind. That takes us to the last few verses of chapter number 32. I'd invite you to read them with me. Verse 20 says, I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man. For I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my Maker would soon take me away. Elihu thus says, I am not here to tickle any man's ears. I'm not here to flatter anyone. I'm not here merely to say what I think others might want to hear. He says, I'm going to speak that which is my studied opinion and that which I consider to be the thing that's right. And with that, chapter 33 opens. He now addresses Job first. The first few verses of that chapter read, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue has spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. In the verses that follow, Elihu directly stated this. He, in fact, stated, as the next slide will point out for us, that his position in this point might be stated in the following way. He stated how common that it was for the hypothetical character of the case before him. He stated that Job had asserted that he wished to converse and talk with God, and he wished to bring his case before God. However, at this point, Elihu simply brings before him that again, it's common knowledge that the wicked are the ones that are punished. To Job, he says, you can't successfully argue with that. You surely are understanding of the point that it is the wicked who are the ones that are on the side of being punished, and they are the ones who have difficulties in life, and they are the ones who meet oppressions and calamities. Surely, Job, you understand that point. As Elihu makes that point, in chapter 33, I'd ask you to notice one of the next things that's mentioned in verses 19 and 20. He is chastened also with the pain upon his bed, and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. That's Elihu's description of the wicked man. This is what happens to him. And Job, this is what has happened to you. 
It is you who now are suffering greatly in health. It is you, Job, who have lost your children. You have lost your possessions. Is not this descriptive of you? As you can see, even beyond that, we directly notice that he addresses Job's friends. As he does all of that as well, we notice chapter 34 opens that way. Furthermore, the text reads, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For as the ear trieth words, and the mouth tasteth meat, let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. As he addressed Job's friends, that is to say, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, he directly accused them of being in a position of failing miserably to make a case really against Job. I would ask, though, that we keep that in mind because that's going to be an interesting point a little bit later in the lesson tonight. We're going to, in essence, come to the point of asking, did Elihu, in essence, make the same kind of arguments that the friends did in earlier chapters, and did he thus fail in the same way that they did, based on the reading of chapter 34? With those thoughts in mind, we can only wonder. You'll notice at one point Elihu proceeds to quote some of the features about the statements that Job had made. Now notice with this, he quotes Job. He in essence says, Job, this is what you have claimed. These are the comments you have stated. This is what you have declared. I would invite you to notice, interestingly, that statement. In verses, verse number 35 of chapter 34, Job hath spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin, he clappeth his hands among us, and multiplieth his words against God. That's the very text that Cale read for us earlier. You'll notice in it, Elihu had the brashness to say this in verse 35. Job has spoken without knowledge. Job has uttered without wisdom. And in verse 36, he states, Elihu that is, that my desire is that Job might be tried unto the end because of his answers. Elihu wished that Job would ultimately have the thing he wished for because he was sure that what Job was asking was not the thing that Job really needed. And he was certain that the thing that Job really wished for is not what would answer his greatest request. But he said, I wish Job could have what he wants. In verse 37, he thus puts the final analysis to that by saying, He addeth rebellion unto his sin. You see, Job's been guilty of sin. He just won't admit it, is what Elihu says. And now he's adding rebellion on top of all of that, for he will not, in fact, humble himself and submit to the truth of what surely is the case. This rebellion of which Job was supposedly guilty, chapter 34, verse 37, only takes us into the next chapter, namely chapter number 35. Elihu in this chapter basically reprimands Job strongly for lifting himself up to the point of not submitting before God. And I put it in language like this. Job, in the mind of Elihu, was comparing himself to God. Now these again, this was the claim of Elihu. Job, you are making yourself equal to God. You are elevating yourself to the point that you are on an equal plane with God. And Job, 
No person should do that. That's one of the things in the mind of Elihu of which Job was guilty. Just a few of the words of chapter 35 will, I think, make that fairly plain for each of us to see. In fact, notice with me verse 3. I'm, uh, begin reading with me in verse 2. Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidest my righteousness is more than God's? For thou saidest, what advantage will it be unto me? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? I will answer thee and my companions with thee. Look into the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receivest he of thine hand? Job, your righteousness, you are making it out to be far more than what it is. You need to appreciate the fact that your guilt, your transgressions, these things of which you're guilty make you far beneath God and you should admit it and you should confess it and you should thus strive to make things right with your God. It is with that in mind that chapter 35 closes with these words, beginning in verse 13. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore trust thou in him. But now, because it is not so, he hath visited in his anger, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain, he multiplieth words without knowledge. Surely God will not respond to the vain in Job, that's you. <laughs> Surely the Almighty will not have respect unto those that are ungodly in Job. That's you, my friend. You can see in verse 15, at this particular point, Job, in terms of righteousness, that is not you. You rather are guilty of these matters of transgressions and sins. And because of that, verse, 30, verse number 16, Job multiplies words without knowledge. And with that, chapter 36 opens like this. At this point, Elihu continues his speech. He continues his sermon, if you please. As he does so, the language that he uses might well be described in words like these. The interesting features that with which he begins this chapter is that he lifts up God in greatness. And he says, Job, you must understand that even at your best, you're so far beneath God because His greatness is not open to comparison with humans. Though you may be the greatest of the men of the east, in the words of Job 1, verses 1 to 5, still God is far greater than any man, and your comparison with Him must not, never be done. To read a few verses, beginning verse 2 of chapter 36, "'Suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker.'" We would have to admit, yet again, would we not, that Elihu was a very bold person to use the words he did in verse 2. Did you note with me that he said, I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. Elihu claimed to be speaking on God's behalf in chapter 36 expressly. And he claimed that the words he shared were exactly the judgment and exactly the conclusion from the God of heaven. Let us hear what else Elihu had to say. 
Verse 4, For truly my words shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. Elihu said, The one perfect in knowledge, Job, is with you. You need to listen. You need to be quiet and let me bless you by the bounty of my appreciation and my knowledge. We can begin to feel, can we not, the kind of person Elihu may well have been. He was the kind of person who was quick to share with you how blessed you were to be able to hear him and how noble it might be to hear what wisdom he had to share. Have you known someone like that at the workplace or someone who seemingly was far smarter than they really were? But perhaps we should go a little further into chapter 36. We can also see, beginning in verse number 13, "...but the hypocrites in heart heap up wrath." They cry not when He bindeth them. They die in youth, and their life is among the unclean. He delivereth the poor in His affliction, and openeth their ears in oppression. Even so would He have removed thee out of the strait into a broad place, where there is no straightness, and that which should be set on thy table should be full of fatness. But thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked." Judgment and justice take hold on thee, because there is wrath. Beware, lest he take thee away with his stroke. Then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Job, if we may paraphrase some of those thoughts we just read. Job, our God is a God who is of great love and mercy and who would desire to return you to the place that you enjoyed previously when things were well with you and when things were at ease. But Job, the problem is God was unwilling to do that because you wouldn't come to Him. You have still in your rebellion refused to come to Him and for that reason you better be careful or He'll take you away in the stroke of a moment. At this point, Elihu was certainly of a position to say, Job, things may get worse if you don't straighten up. And if you don't appreciate the plight that you're in and acknowledge those sins of which you're guilty and come before the merciful hand of the God of heaven. As you can see, beginning in verse 25, every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. Neither can the number of His years be searched out. For He maketh small the drops of water, they pour down rain according to the vapor thereof. And Elihu begins to appeal to God's greatness in the natural realm. With that said, chapter 37 opens, and Elihu continues his speech. He again makes note of the greatness of God, and in this time he specifically focuses on a number of earth's systems. For instance, the systems recognized on earth and the clouds, the systems that you and I see as it comes to the weather systems. Elihu makes mention of them and says, Job, this is a testimony to God's greatness, and this is a testimony to how you should bow before Him. With that said, chapter 37 ends in these words, verses 22 through 24 of Job 37. Fair weather cometh out of the north, with God is terrible majesty. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power, and in judgment and in plenty of justice, He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear Him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. That phrase, wise of heart, is Elihu's way of saying, Job, you're too proud. 
you have elevated, lifted yourself up far beyond where you ought to be. And due to that, God, in fact, will not respond to you by blessing you with your former station in life. And with that, the words of Elihu are ended. In chapter 38, we shall encounter another speaker next Sunday evening. For right now, what might be some thoughts that come to our consideration, at least in brevity, upon looking at these issues so far tonight? The lessons, it seems to me, though many might have been chosen, we might choose these. Revisiting the opening verses of chapter 32, is it not fair to at least make some comments about the subjects of both age and wisdom? Each of us realize the tenor of life and its development. We come into this world and we know so little. And as we mature and we age, the power of experience comes upon us. We are able to watch and observe the things about us. And if we're wise, we will watch carefully and hopefully not make the same mistakes that those in past generations also have made. But might we not be quick to say that sometimes experience can be one of the most difficult teachers? Isn't it so tempting to think in those early years of life that our capability of knowledge and wisdom and what we have observed and learned certainly put us to a position that we could never make the same mistakes that, say, dad or mom made or granddad or grandma. We seem to overestimate our own ability, don't we? We simply think that we're smarter than what we really are. After all, quite often when we live at home, before we reach that point of going out on our own, things often at that point seem to be so definitive and so concrete. But when we begin to make our own way and forge our own path through this life, we suddenly find that things aren't nearly what they seemed to be just a few years before. Age and wisdom. We would at least have to acknowledge that Elihu did remain silent as the younger and let the others speak first, namely Job and his three friends. And as they spoke, it helps us appreciate that the age and the characteristic of wisdom that was supposed to be with them reminds us today that we too should have a hearkening ear often to those who have experienced the years of wisdom and are prepared to share with us what experience has taught them. How often do we sit at the feet of those aged men and women and listen with great care what it was like 40 and 50 and 60 years ago? Quite often what they experienced then may be the very thing in principle that we must face ourselves. I'm reminded, in fact, of something interesting in Proverbs 16.31 because it does, in fact, harmonize beautifully with this consideration. When we think about wisdom, we should fairly say that just because one is old does not necessarily mean that one is wise. Sometimes wisdom doesn't come with age, does it? Today in our world, there are many who are aged, but yet they're fools. And we know that's so because the Scriptures declare it. That leads us to that text in Proverbs 16.31. On that occasion, what did the inspired writer say? What words did he have to share with us that touched this same subject? It begins with a reference to the hoary head. A hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. And there we have what is that hoary head and what makes it so very wise. 
that gray-headed man, that gray-headed woman, rest assured that just because the head's gray doesn't mean the person's wise, but if that way be found in the way of righteousness, then there is to be found wisdom. You and I can look up to those Christians who perhaps are well into their years, but oh, what experience they have in terms of what the church has experienced, in terms of what they have seen, in terms of the matters in life. And quite often their experience can be the very thing that can aid us so greatly. In the days of Solomon, it's interesting, isn't it, that Solomon's the one that wrote that text in Proverbs 16.31, but yet in his own life he can be a testimony to this very thing. In 1 Kings chapter 12, really beginning in chapter 11, but on into chapter 12, when the time came that Solomon's son was one who became the ruling monarch and the king, he needed some advice and he needed some counsel. And the first thing that he did was ask for those to come. And we really remember what happened. There was advice from those that were older. But there was also advice from another group of people who were his contemporaries. They were as young as he was. This was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. When he listened to the advice of each group, which one did he respect more? He respected the advice of the younger group. And that was a mistake that would ultimately lead to the kingdom being rent in two. He should have listened to the wise advice of those older gentlemen, those who knew what was going to happen to the kingdom, and those who were well apprised of what the sentiment of the people was and how they were going to react. But Rehoboam and his foolishness did exactly what his contemporaries said. And again, that led to the kingdom being stricken from him. Doesn't it help us appreciate that often there is tremendous tenor of wisdom in the words of those who are wise and those who are seasoned, and those who are older. That wisdom is to be found among those, of course, that are the Christians. Beyond that, maybe another lesson. What about the attitude of respect that was found also in the words, at least initially, that Elihu used in chapter 32? Respect. He was respectful enough at that point to remain silent and let them finish their speaking. Job and the three friends. Then and only then, after they had finished, did Elihu consider himself appropriate to speak. Maybe that helps us see that at times, respect seems to be something that's a bit lost. We live in a society sometimes where respect isn't nearly as observed as it once was. Do we respect parents as we once did? Do we respect grandparents? Do we respect civil authorities? Do we respect the church? Do we respect God and Jesus and the Bible the way that it once was respected? It does cause one to wonder, does it? And it seems in many instances that the answer is a self-evident one. Sometimes we notice that respect for authority is far less than it once was. There was a time when... Children were whipped and spanked, and if they got it at school, they got it again at home. And now, maybe we are far more quick to blame a teacher when the child is the one that's spanked. Maybe we're too quick to appreciate that teacher, apparently, in the mind of many, didn't have the authority and was not in a position to reprimand my child. And maybe also there are those who question the civil government far more because we notice in Romans 13:1 there is no power that is but what the God of heaven has established. 
What about authority in other ways in life? Doesn't it challenge us? Even in the home, parents ought to be respected as the authority. Because there we see in Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Sometimes in society, our children are not reprimanded at home, and they are not made to mind at home, and thus then the rest of society is faced with this issue of a person who's rebellious and presumptuous and who does not intend to ever be restrained. We notice at least Elihu had enough upbringing, and even though his boldness was far more than it ought to have been in chapter 34, at least he spoke with the words of respectfulness to Job and the others at the outset. May you and I also appreciate so many passages challenging us about the matter of respect and how right and how appropriate and how that it is of God. The church is one of the things that we've mentioned in lessons recently. To think about the nature of the respect for the church. Do you and I respect the church as we should, lifting her to the elevation that she so richly deserves? She is the body of Christ. Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And there is but one of her. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There are not many churches. There is but one. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He only promised to build one. That one body of Christ is the one that you and I are blessed not only to know but to be a part of. And in being a participating member thereof, we can enjoy all the benefits to be had in that body. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Thus, our respect for her ought to be unmatched. Tonight, as we are assembled on this occasion, we've shown our respect in part by being present. And we look forward to all the opportunities that afford us to worship and to be a part of that body of Christ. As we think about this attribute, this matter of respect, maybe it leads us directly to yet a third lesson. The greatness of God. Elihu did state us to that point in chapters 36 and 37. He in essence said, Job, you must understand and appreciate the absolute greatness of God and you must never lift yourself up to His plane. For the next few moments, I'd invite you to think with me about just how great our God is. We understand beginning from the opening declaration of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1 beginning in verse 1. We notice on that occasion prior to the establishment of any element in creation, it was God in the beginning who created the heaven and the earth. And He began to order that creation and to put it in the proper arrangement. You and I can marvel, truly marvel, at the sheer capability of that. Today, in this world in which we live, we know that things which are, are things that God has made. We cannot create or destroy anything. One of the most basic things set forth in science is this law of conservation of energy. And it simply says that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. God has blessed us in this universe with a fixed amount of it. We, as far as we can tell, are unable to destroy any of it or create any more. But it is upheld by the greatness of the creative agency of the God of heaven. 
Our God did that. The greatest human who has ever lived can't create anything. All we can do is transform what God has made, put it into different shapes or forms or sizes. That's a testimony to just how great God is, isn't it? Doesn't it help us see also that you and I are merely those who should appreciate that and learn to make use of these principles that God has etched within the fabric of His universe. In Hebrews 11:3, we read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Again, God spoke it into existence. Humans today have often wished they could do that, but not one single instance of it has ever been recorded. Are we not mindful then of just how great our God is? At this point, I suppose, as we reflect upon God's greatness for just a moment and think about the marvel of the physical nature of this universe, think how that points us to the spiritual aspect for just a moment. There is a spiritual existence, and you and I know it well because it is spoken of in the Word of God. There is an immortal spirit that is you and me that will never, ever die. When you and I think about eternity, isn't that rolled into the nature of God Himself? He will never die. And any spirit that is thus fashioned and made of Him will never die. And it is He that formeth the spirit of man within Him. Zechariah 12 verse 1. Is not He the Father of our spirits? The famous question of Hebrews 12 verse 9. Indeed, inasmuch as we understand that, we see then that physical death is merely a transition to that thing that we appreciate hereafter. That life, of course, that goes on and on in that spirit form. When you and I contemplate that, no wonder the last several chapters of the book of Job will then be of this nature. Who will be the spokesman as chapter 38 opens next Sunday night? If you've gone ahead and looked and read ahead, you know who that's going to be. It's now going to be God. We've heard Job talk, we've heard Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz, and we've now even heard Elihu. It's now time for God to speak. And when He does, what a thunderous reply it's going to be. I think we can each look forward to hearing the approach that He will take, and we shall take up that lesson next Sunday evening. For tonight, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, looking at what we have about Elihu, maybe we can summarize it in these words. We have noticed his boldness, perhaps at times more bold than what he ought to have stated. But in that boldness, we at least admitted his respectfulness, the nature of respect he had for the wisdom and age of those about him. And we also did notice he did make reference to the greatness of God and calls all of us to appreciate the same. Tonight, as you and I think about that greatness, have you obeyed that greatness? One of the things that we also could mention about the God's great provision is this book. Many of you are holding one on your lap at this very moment. It is truly unequaled in the literature of the human family, primarily because a man didn't write it. It was the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? Men were blessed to actually hold a pencil. But isn't it true that God provided it and it has no equal? The greatest books in science or literature or government or philosophy all pale in comparison to this one. And tonight, contained in it is the gospel plan of salvation. The thing needed in which a person can in fact obey that, stand before God at judgment and rest assured that he or she will be right, saved, and his name in the book of life. And that could be your case and mine tonight. 
if you have obeyed this previously and you're living in a faithful covenant relationship with the Master, thanks be unto God for that decision. May you continue that faithfulness. For isn't it still true that he that endureth to the end shall be saved? Matthew 10, 22. If though you're not in a faithful covenant relationship with the God of heaven, this great God we've mentioned tonight, He has loved you and so graciously extended the element of mercy to you. He wants you to be a faithful child of His. He wants you to be a member of His kingdom. He wants you to be the one who trusts in His Son. If we can help you do that tonight, the gospel plan of salvation is set set before us in words like this. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Savior and be baptized for the remission of sins. If you need to come back to your first love, that too is something the Bible sets before us. If you need to ask for the prayers of brethren under the banner of James 5.16, we'd be honored to assist and help you and we'd be happy to pray for you. We would ask that as we sing this song in just a moment, you'd come forward and let us know the way that we can. But for now, if there would be one or more in the audience with a need to respond publicly, why not do that even now while together we stand and while we sing?